0: At the intersection of art and science, the Sanford Underground Research Lab. From SDPB, today is Thursday, February 29th. This is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, a conversation with Marty Tubels. He is the Artist-in-Residence for 2024 at the Lab in Leeds. We'll talk about Renaissance art, local legacies, and the extraction of knowledge deep underground. Today, we also bring you an update on the war in Ukraine with analyst Tim Shorn. We get to know a South Dakota college student slash American Idol contestant. We'll preview an upcoming showcase for composers. Plus, we'll have a little fun for Leap Day. Dorothy Rosby has us covered for that. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first.
1: Politics and Public Policy Reporting is supported by the Center for Western Studies at Augustana University.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We're going to check back in with Tim Shorn about the wars happening in Ukraine and the Middle East today. Dr. Shorn is coordinator of international studies and a professor of political science at the University of South Dakota. And he is with us from SDPB studios at USD in Vermilion. Professor Shorn, welcome back. Thank you so much for being here.
2: It's great to be back, thank you.
0: So we have, as of February 24th, entered the third year of the war after the invasion from Russia into Ukraine. And that is a, a devastating anniversary to hit uh, two years. What are we seeing um, coming out of Ukraine as far as the news about what is going on um, on the battlefield?
2: Well, I think the big news over the last couple of weeks has been the number of casualties really on both sides. Uh, President Zelensky noted that 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died during the conflict. Uh, Western intelligence would say that is uh, a low estimate. Um, that it is probably more than that. And at the same time, Russia has lost somewhere between seventy and 85,000 soldiers, and these are all deaths. We're not even counting those who have been injured. So the real question becomes, is this sustainable? Uh, It is more sustainable for Russia because historically they have always cared a little bit less about the human cost of war. Uh, They have oftentimes entered battle with little regard for the lives of their soldiers, and as long as they can recruit, and I put that in quotes because sometimes it's probably going to be more like press gangs, uh, Russia can continue. On the other hand, for Ukraine, uh, it's going to be more difficult uh, over time. we seem to have extended our period of stagnation, though Russia is starting to make a few small gains on the battlefield, um, which is probably disheartening to Ukraine, uh, but certainly is not necessarily indic- indicative of, uh, of Russia gaining a, a, you know, a major upper hand. But all of this brings into question how much longer can this go? Uh, And the answer is there is still no end in sight and the casualty rates will remain high.
0: So we have seen the blocking of of new military assistance in the United States Congress, largely Republicans blocking that as part of a larger conversation about uh, where the money in the U.S. should go and what it should pay for and who gets to decide. Is that having an impact on the battlefield?
2: It probably has not yet, but it could down the road as uh, Ukraine attempts to get replacement uh, uh, weapons, replacement parts, replacement ammunition. Um, Europe is at least seemingly trying to step up its game. Uh, The Czech Republic announced that they had discovered more ammunition that they can send uh, to the Ukrainians. Um, it'll be interesting to see if now Sweden's accession to NATO will uh, give NATO a little, a little boost of, of uh, energy to try to pick up the European part of support for Ukraine. Um, but in the long run, if we're not able to provide assistance to Ukraine, it does more than just damage on the battlefield, it's also damage on the diplomatic field as well. Um, The United States has played an important role in security in Europe since the end of, well, even during World War II, and to have the United States becoming a more questionable ally, um, it may change the equation a bit as European countries start to uh, kind of refigure their alliances or refigure their own defense.
0: Now, now meanwhile, we're having a—it's an election year in the U.S., and uh, Mitch McConnell will not be part of the leadership of the Republican Party in the Senate come November. U.S. Senator John Thune from South Dakota came out just a week before we heard about— or a few days, I think, maybe four days before we heard about Mitch McConnell, uh, Senator McConnell, that uh, Senator Thune was endorsing Donald Trump. Europe has seen a a Trump presidency before— they know somewhat what to expect from it. How, how does the presidential election you know, change that dialogue overseas?
2: Well, I think the Europeans are always cognizant of the fact that there is some disgruntlement in the United States about the amount that a lot of the Europea- European countries pony up for their own defense. And certainly this is going to sharpen that uh, discussion a bit because we can expect that whether or not uh, Donald Trump is elected, that there are still going to be some ongoing discussions about America's role in European security. If a Trump administration returns to office, whether or not we leave NATO, it is certainly going to be a more difficult relationship and one where the Europeans are going to uh, feel somewhat adrift from the, the Grand Alliance that has been in place for so long. And so I think regardless of, of what happens in November, uh, there are going to be some kind of deeper uh, discussions being held in Europe about what European security looks like with reduced American support, uh, political, economic, military uh, for European security.
0: All right. Meanwhile, reports uh, surfacing this morning about Palestinians killed while gathered for food aid in the Middle East. Um, Israeli forces opened fire. There are vastly different accounts about how that happened, and those stories are still being reported. But let's switch to the Middle East. And um, what are you seeing? You know, I was hoping for a ceasefire Or, you know, people were talking about a ceasefire. This seems like that's not, uh, this does not bode well for a ceasefire. What what do you think we should start with here?
2: Well, and I I think this is another case where we look at the number of casualties, that we know that the the Palestinian casualties are in the tens of thousands. And while uh, some may try to... uh, cast dispersions on Hamas and their ability to release uh, credible information. Uh, in the aftermath of past conflicts, um, Hamas numbers have held up under uh, scru- scrutiny. And so I think that, you know, if we're looking at 30,000 Palestinian deaths and easily two-thirds of those are civilians, um, that is going to start having, I think, a greater effect on the street in Arab countries, which is then going to start to push Arab governments to uh, take a harder stance. Um, quite honestly, the, uh, the Arab governments have been deafening in their silence in that uh, I, don't see, I don't think they see any benefit from becoming more involved even diplomatically in this particular conflict, and so they have remained quiet. But at some point, if the Arab street starts to speak, those governments are going to have to have to start uh, uh, speaking up a little more. On mm-hmm. the Israeli side, um, we're certainly approaching hundreds of of casualties amongst Israeli soldiers. Uh, certainly, a few hundred dead, and probably you know hundreds more injured. Eventually, those numbers start to to come home, so to speak, mm-hmm. and Israelis start to question what are we getting out of this increased loss of life? Is Israeli security really going to be um, increased as a result of this ongoing war? The problem that Israel is confronting is that at this point, um, the Netanyahu government's uh, prosecution of the war against Hamas is as much or more about domestic politics as it is about security. Uh, His uh, coalition is hanging on by a thread. Uh, He knows that if he um, essentially allows domestic politics to return to normal beyond a war, um, uh, kind of uh, the war zone, (laughs) then his time in office may be even more limited, and there are real concerns for him. Uh, because of that. So I think as we look at the domestic politics of Israel, it's going to drive the continued fight against Hamas, which means then that there is probably no end in sight, no ceasefire in sight, no let up in sight.
0: Mm. I hate to leave it there, but there it is. Uh, Tim Shorn is coordinator of international studies and a professor of political science at the University of South Dakota. He joins us often uh, with uh, South Dakota-grown analysis and information about what's happening in the international uh, landscape. Dr. Shorn, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Who has the final say on regulating CO2 pipelines in South Dakota? That's a question that still doesn't have a firm answer. As pipeline companies Summit Carbon Solutions aims to resubmit a project proposal, lawmakers look to find a compromise between companies and landowners. Now, landowners want counties to be the regulators. They see counties being distinct in how they would need to impose setback distances. Supporters of the pipelines see that individual control as a deterrent for companies and a potential detriment to South Dakota's agricultural future. So let's listen in, in their own words. Senator Casey Crabtree opens the debate on Senate Bill 201 on the floor of the Senate.
3: It's undeniable that the topic of pipelines has been emotional these past few years. It's pitted neighbors against each other and landowners against farmers. Now, let's be clear today, the future of success for farmers and South Dakota's ag economy is on the line this session. There are those who want to close down our borders to the national and global corn and ethanol markets, and those who see opportunity and are willing to work towards solutions. SB 201 is part of that solution. This year, there is a package of bills that focus on a process, one that promotes respect, fairness, and certainty for everyone involved. You have to understand, this is a compromise. Not everyone will be happy, and that's what makes it the best compromise. Senate Bill 201 gives money to farmers and counties, not out-of-state trial lawyers and environmental activists who line their pockets by killing value-added egg projects with misinformation and propaganda. I'll be the first to say pipeline companies made mistakes in the past few years and I won't apologize for them. The question becomes, how do we move forward? SB 201 corrects some of those mistakes and codifies building the South Dakota way, a way that promotes respect, fairness, and certainty for everyone involved.
1: Further remarks on Senate Bill 201.
3: Senator Colbeck.
4: Back when I was a public utilities commissioner, we actually permitted a couple of different Keystone and Keystone XL pipelines. And if you ask yourself if this was a good idea now, why wasn't it a good idea then? because we ran into the exact same thing. Counties wanted some sort of setback. They thought that the pipeline was too dangerous, and what happened is they were preempted by FEMSA. So that's the first reason why I think and agree with the speaker from Beadle and Spink County, because I believe he's right. That the counties right now, if they went to court, they would lose that argument because it's been lost in the past, years ago. Secondly, who pays for that when they do get sued? It goes to the, the county insurance pool. So, now even though there are three or four different counties who want to have a setback, that if they're chosen and they can be represented, that insurance pool is the one that's going to get hit. All 66 counties in the state of South Dakota. So, that's what I feel I'm protecting. The reason I think I'm protecting that is because of what's happened in the past. Please vote yes on 201.
1: F- further remarks? Senator Pishke.
5: I rise today in opposition to Senate Bill 201 because this bill, specifically in Section 7, would prohibit any county, any municipality, any township, and any other government unit whatsoever from ever passing a new ordinance or enforcing an existing local ordinance that is in any way related to hazardous pipelines, such as the proposed CO2 pipeline. This bill would forever prohibit local rules regarding routing or setback distances or zoning permits and would entirely preempt all local laws and ordinances and regulations where the citizens and local communities voiced their opinions and interests and where local governments did their job and passed common sense land use ordinances. Local control is as South Dakota as it gets. I'm shocked at the support there is for 201. Proponents claim that 201 provides landowner protections dealing with repairing drain tile, liability issues, and evidence of a confidential dispersion or hazardous hazard distance model. However, I've learned that pipeline that a pipeline company is already responsible for damage it caused to your personal property, drain tile, that liability provisions already exist in the proposed easements, and that during the navigator CO2 pipeline POC hearing last year, hazardous CO2 plume models was released publicly. So the takeaway is so-called landowner protections in 201 are already protections landowners have under existing law and precedents. These provisions do not move the ball forward in any meaningful way.
1: Further remarks on Senate Bill 201? Senator Schoenbeck.
6: Thank you, Mr. President. I, I, I first have a question, if somebody can answer it, and since the summit carbon pipeline is the one we're most talking about, is there anybody here that can tell us? Approximately how much tax revenue that would generate and what governmental entity it would go to
1: Senator Crabtree do you wish to answer the question?
3: Thank you Uh, When we look at this this is crossing 18 counties. There's 12.6 million dollars of estimated uh, property tax paid off that and in 201 what you see is an extra dollar per foot that we charge uh, that pipeline Uh, to come into South Dakota. With that, that generates over $3.5 million that would go uh, for at least the next 12 years uh, back to those counties, those local governments.
6: Senator Schoenbeck, you have the floor. Thank you, Mr. President, members of the body. We thought the problems counties are having with funding was so important that this last summer, we had a summer study about it. And God bless the folks that worked on it. It was frustrating. Uh, Because at the end of the day it mostly came down to money So now we have a proposal in front of us that will generate revenues for those counties that cost them nothing free cash So now if I added the numbers up, we're talking about uh, over 16 million dollars Annually to help our local counties Why wouldn't we be in favor of that given the challenges those counties have financially
1: further remarks senator Nesba?
7: I rise in support of Senate Bill 201. And I'm going to, rather than talking about the, the, the legal details or the tax details of this, this is really a vision about the future of South Dakota agriculture. Right now, two thirds of our corn in South Dakota gets processed into ethanol. And they're facing two real problems. One is you all keep going out and buying, you know, cars that are more fuel efficient or electric vehicles and you're, you're burning less of that ethanol. And every year they get a little better at coming up with a new hybrid or a, or a new pesticide, new herbicide that that makes them ever more productive. And so we need to figure out a way to maintain the demand for that corn and that ethanol. And so we have some opportunities here. And one of those opportunities is, is looking at sustainable aviation fuel. It's also the, the possibility of being able to have low carbon fuel Uh, having our ethanol categorized as low carbon fuel. South Dakota can be a world leader in low carbon fuel. And that's why even the the good senator from Dell Rapids, he was concerned about why so many people, uh, he was surprised at the support. I'm not at all surprised at the support because this bill is good for South Dakota corn farmers. It's gonna be good for South Dakota agriculture overall. It's gonna be good for our counties and I urge you all to vote yes.
1: Hearing no further remarks the question before the Senate is final passage of Senate bill 201 Members in favor of vote aye those opposed nay. This is a two-thirds majority vote the Secretary will please call the roll
8: Senators Beale Bolan no. Bordeaux no. Breitling aye. Crabtree aye. Davis DiBert, Diedrich excused do Foster no. Frey Hoffman, no. Hunhoff, Aye. Johnson, no. Klum, Colbeck-Jack, Colbeck-Steve, Larson, Mahar, Melhoff, Nesseba, Norstrup, no. Otten, Pishke, no. Reed, Roll, no. Schoenbeck, Aye. Shanefish, Stalzer, Tobin, Aye. Walsh, Aye. Wheeler, Aye. Wick, Aye. Wink, Aye. Wink no. Zickman. Aye. Mr. President, we have 23... Yea's eleven, nays.
1: House Bill Two O or Senate Bill Two O One, having failed to receive a two-thirds majority vote, is hereby declared lost. And under Joint Rule Five Thirteen Point One, a bill re- that has a two-thirds requirement because of the emergency clause fails to get a two-thirds majority vote and receives a majority vote is immediately up for reconsideration.
0: With the removal of the clause, the bill passed on a 23 to 11 vote in the Senate. It has since moved through the House, where it has been amended once again. The House passed the most recent amendment on a 40 to 30 vote, and the newly amended bill now heads back to the Senate for approval. You can listen to full testimony and discussion on the bill at SD.net, and you can find our ongoing news coverage of the story as it unfolds. On our website, sdpb.org news. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The Artist in Residence program at the Sanford Underground Research Facility is open to artists from around the world. The goal of the residency is to create a public exhibition and presentation that connects to the science happening at SURF. Well, this year, the program didn't have to look beyond its own backyard to find its artist. That's because Marty Tubbs Jr. of Rapid City has been selected as the 2024 Artist-in-Residence at SURF. I spoke with him and Gina Gibson, coordinator of the SURF Air program over Zoom yesterday. Let's start when I asked Gina how they pick their artists-in-residence. We
9: have a committee and ultimately the lab director makes the final call, but it, it varies. Um, oftentimes you you know what you want when you see it. <laughs> so we were very excited to see uh, Marty's application. So I think everybody's as excited, I think I've said this over and over again, yeah. people at Surfer are as excited to meet Marty and work with him, hopefully as he is to go there, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Marty, tell me a little bit about what you already know about this facility and why you were drawn to be in a deeper relationship with it?
10: Um, so from what I understand as just a layperson. Um, the research that they're doing is around you know, neutrinos and black matter. You know, I'm not gonna pretend like I know a lot more about those topics is something that I'm very interested in. The other thing that I kind of know about the facility is that it's becoming uh, sort of a, a meeting points of great minds like there's a lot of important research happening there and a lot of researchers and scientists and physicists from all over the world gathering there right now it's exciting to me it's interesting it reminds me a little bit of um the los alamos laboratories in new mexico um i I lived in santa fe for many years and would collaborate with artists um, from those places um, for different exhibitions and things and yeah i just I, i really enjoy meeting other thinkers, whether that's, you know, scientists or um, artists or, you know, researchers, um, I feel like there are some similarities. Um, For me, art is like, it's definitely a calling, it's something that I just compelled to do. I feel like a lot of scientists and researchers have sort of similar mindsets, um, the way they approach their, their work, it's more than just like a job.
0: Gina, what's the interaction between the scientists and the artist?
9: We try to be intentional about having opportunities for artists and the physicists and engineers and support staff. SURF is quite complex in that way. There'll be guided visits underground. There'll be guided visits above ground. We'll create opportunities such as, you know, informal lunches, stuff like that, so... I think there's plenty of opportunity to get comfortable with each other Mm -hmm. and also to, like, I think I've said it to Marty, you kind of collect names and you figure out who said something that really interests you. And then I, as I'm the coordinator, so I spend my time trying to figure out how to get that person at lunch sometimes or a Zoom interview with them or some way of making those connections uh, go further.
0: So then where is the work done, Marty? Well, where will you create art?
10: Yeah, we're still working that out, um, but I'll definitely be there, meeting people, learning, um, checking the sites out, Um, and also I'll have a studio in Lead where I'll work and make artwork. Um, But also, I live I live nearby. I live in Rapid City, so it's just you know down the hill a little ways, and um, my home studio is very very close. I think that's what's sort of unique about um, my residency is that I think traditionally these this program has brought in artists from further away. Um, yeah. So I think the time was much more limited or a little more precious, where I think, you know, I look forward to, I'll be making a site visit next month um, just to kind of get a lay of the land, get an idea of my planning for the summer.
0: You mentioned Santa Fe, and I want to help listeners get to know you a little bit, your education there and how you got your start. What are some of your earliest memories about art making? And did you think of it as art making?
10: I was raised in a family of artists. Uh, I always have to emphasize the junior part of my name because my father, Marty Tubul Sr., is an accomplished artist. And if you Google my name, you're gonna see his work come up first. And, um, you know, he was my first art teacher and, you know, my first, uh, you know, um, the first person who really encouraged me to explore art and explore it as is a profession um, uh, where our art's very different. We make very, in a lot of ways, if you look at the work that we do, it's it's very different. But in other ways, there are a lot of similarities. Things I'm starting to kind of notice more and more as, as I get older. But I started with my father. I grew up in his studio, cleaning paintbrushes, you know, helping out, you know, working with his materials. And then um, after high school. Um, I went to school down in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at the Institute of American Indian Arts, where I got my BFA in studio arts with an emphasis in ceramics and printmaking, which were both mediums that I didn't have much experience with growing up. Um, so I was always kind of drawn towards new mediums, new experiences. I spent about a decade after I graduated in Santa Fe, working in art galleries. Um, Santa Fe is one of the third is, is the third largest art market in the United States after New York and Los Angeles. So there are a lot of different kinds of artists there. It's a very big art market. Um, you know, I had a really good time down there. Um, I started having kids and I started missing home. And in 2017, I was offered a teaching position at Oglala Lakota College. And at that time, I just had my first daughter and I really wanted her to grow up in her traditional community, her tribal community, um, Oglala Lakota. So you know, I wanted her to grow up on her traditional homelands, around her culture and around her relatives and her people to have you know good good roots in that way. Um, so I came back in 2017 where I, I, where I started a graphic arts program at OLC. and I've been making art and teaching ever since here in, um, in the Black Hills area.
0: You mentioned your father, I think of Oscar Howe, Richard Redowl. Don Montalvo, some of these really powerful artists that it's impossible to ignore their influence on Native American art in a variety of ways. We could spend hours talking about that alone. But as a younger artist, like how do you think about somebody else's legacy when you're making art, especially when it's so close to you because it's in your family?
10: I think the way that I approach it is I definitely, you know, I acknowledge my influences, I acknowledge the artists that come before me and the paths that they laid ahead so that I could be here today and do the work that I do today. You know, it's not something that I would ever, you know, ignore. Um, but also I really feel like it's my responsibility to break new ground and to make take on new materials. It's something that I engage a lot with, with the work that I do as an educator, because I am transitioning into this next generation, as you know, there are younger artists behind me coming up, I always kind of emphasize with my students is that our ancestors embraced new technology. They embraced embraced new mediums. When they came across glass beads, um, trade beads, you know, they started making art with it. Came across ledger paper and colored pencils, they started making art with it, and that's been the progress and the trajectory of our traditional art forms. And today, I work with 3D printers, with drones. Um, these are all materials that I think an outsider might look at and not consider to be traditional Lakota art tools. You know, I really believe you know the one tradition as artists are as innovators, and that innovation is something that I really think about when I'm making my work. So whether it's you know working in a in a traditional medium, you know, I think there's a a connection with that innovation that I, I, I think about a lot of my work and I encourage with my students. Um, and in terms of inspiration, like I've, I grew up here and I have strong roots in my community with my relatives, my family, They're artists, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, they're musicians, they're painters, they're bead workers, you know, they're all over the place. Um, but also I'm, I'm human, I'm a person of the world, you know, I have, um, I, my influences come from artists in the South, like Thornton Dial, or, um, you know, Renaissance artists like, you know, Michelangelo, um, you know, I'm more than just one, one thing. My art is more than just one thing or one, one idea or representation.
0: Hmm. Gina, what's the potential? What have you seen in the past? And what are you hoping for in the future? In when you look at the history of this site? and mining and extraction, and now it's about knowledge and science and discovery. What does an art conversation bring to the mission of SURF, where it's been and where it's going?
9: I, I think it's it's kind of complicated in the sense of I'm very inspired by SURF. I have joked that I'm the SURF fangirl, like the ultimate SURF fangirl. Um, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, I think because it's complex, artists can sometimes... Make something complex. I don't want to say simple because I don't think it's ever simple, but an artist has the opportunity to talk about something difficult or challenging in an immediate way because you either have to stand in front of something and experience it or watch something time based, or an artist basically yells, Hey, look. I mean, at least in my perspective. So every artist that comes in has an opportunity to say, hey, here's the thing that's important, or wow, I can't believe this is happening here. This is so innovative, it's so inspiring. It's, I mean, and I felt that way as an artist visiting the site, and I've been excited every year as artists have come in because they've seen different things that I've seen, or they saw the same thing, but said it in a different way. So it's really, it's exciting as someone who loves the site, um, but also sees its very complex history. Yeah. Uh, Marty, sacred, uh, sacred
0: ground for Otatishakuin Nation. Uh, what is the potential for these kind of conversations, it, from an artistic standpoint, to elevate that for, for other people to understand a complicated, difficult history?
10: Yeah, I mean, I think my my goal, you know, is, is to try to start that, that conversation, um, you know, with... The people there with the people coming there you know i really feel like it's an, an important part of uh, that legacy the things that happened you know in during the gold rush and things that happened at the mine you know in a way it's, it's separate from surf you know they're not pulling gold out anymore but you know they are a part of that legacy and i think there is a responsibility to talk about it you know especially with all of these great minds coming together you know, I, th- I think you know engaging with that history is really important both for my people and the way it inf- impacts our treaty rights and our relationship to the hills and our you know identity as Lakota people but even for the future you know I I look around that that site and you know homestake mind is they're not not pulling gold out in, in that way anymore but there are other active mining sites around that area there's still a lot of exploratory you know mining in the plans and you know, people, there's still that same hunger for um, mineral extraction at any cost, you know, whether it's poisoning the water table or, you know, making a huge impact on the land. And I think we need to talk about that and investigate that and, you know, try to ask questions about our future. And and I think in some ways the, the research is in that direction, you know, with the science and I really hope to to bring that question to play with just how we engage with our land there.
0: What's your art making practice now, particularly as a father? Children afoot in the studio as part of the practice, inspiring you likewise.
10: Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, my kids are a big part of my my practice. Um, I really try not to push them too hard towards you know one particular discipline or you know medium you know, I try to incorporate them as I can. They're still pretty young, but as they get older, they will definitely be my built-in studio assistants um, mm-hmm. as I was when I was a kid. Uh, but also they, you know, they make a big impact on my work. I can't help but think think about them when I'm engaging with some of these ideas. It's definitely giving me a different perspective about like the future and the choices that I'm making today and how it impacts them, you know, how it impacts my, maybe someday my grandchildren, these different generations, I feel, Uh, Yeah, I I just feel like I have a a different perspective on on this kind of stuff, but also they find their way in my work. I just completed a project at the Oyate Health Center here in Rapid City, Um, a large scale permanent uh, mural in the new hospital there. And it's a a photo collage of the history of that site. And um, you'll see pictures of, you know, chiefs and people from my the past, but you also see pictures of my kids in there as representations of like present and you know future generations.
0: You mentioned the Renaissance and a Michelangelo. What are some of the things in those artistic minds that were working so many centuries ago that still inspire you today?
10: Well, certainly the mastery. I mean, those artists really kind of refined a lot of the kind of basic art principle that I teach in drawing classes or painting classes, you know, around perspective, around, um, you know, proportion, um, you know, really studying form and studying your, you know, studying your materials, you know, working in paint or stone. Um, But I think it wasn't until I was able to really visit a lot of these sites in Rome that it struck me that I think something that really made an impact on me was the nature of the work so much of the work from the Renaissance is devotional, and it's hard to explain, like, in the impact of some of the work until you're in front of it and until you you experience it and you get a sense of awe and wonder and, you know, a sense of the divine through something as simple as a fresco or, you know, a marble sculpture. And I think there are projects that I've been engaging in more and more recently that have felt similar in that way, in terms of like a a devotional work, you know, not necessarily centered around Christianity, but um, the same sort of spirit of awe and wonder.
0: Let's take a moment now for a very special day. Well, we have brought you the voice of Rapid City humorist, Dorothy Rosby on many of last year's heavy hitter holidays. You heard her read her holiday-themed essays on Halloween, Thanksgiving, and New Year's on the radio. We posted her Christmas reading on our Instagram page. That's SDPB News, by the way. Now, let's listen to her talk about her love for today. It's Leap Day.
8: Ode to an Extra Day. You remember that old poem, 30 days hath September, April, June, and November, all the rest have 31, excepting February alone, and that has 28 days clear, and 29 in each leap year? Well, in honor of leap year, I've added a few verses. This ditty stood the test of time, though alone and one don't even rhyme, and February feeling left out every four years gets a little more clout. An extra day, but I'd like to know, why put it in a month with snow? And another thing, what's the reason we add it during campaign season? Leap Day wasn't created to give presidential candidates an extra day to campaign, but that is one of its drawbacks. And another thing. According to my extensive research, February 29th occurs on Wednesdays and Mondays more often than any other day. Extra Mondays are just mean. No wonder some superstitious types think leap years are unlucky, and we'd be wise to wrap ourselves in bubble wrap and hide under the bed until it's all over. And woe to those who are born on leap day. Well, I disagree. I have no issue with leap year, and I'd go so far as to say people who have birthdays on leap day are special. You have a 1 in 1,461 chance of being born a leapling, as they're called. Also, leapster or leaper, not to be confused with leper, which is something else entirely, and it's not lucky at all. Less than 0.07% of the world's population were born on leap day, which makes them rare and exotic, like white buffalo, blue moons, and affordable health insurance. Personally, I love Leap Day. It's a perfect day for putting my old photos into albums, organizing my filing cabinet, and cleaning that layer of greasy dust off the top of my kitchen cupboards. Those are the kinds of things I never get done in 365 days. And if I don't get them done on Leap Day, they're the kinds of things I can put off for another four years. Still, I realize that an extra day isn't helpful for everyone, so I'd like to dedicate the final verse of my updated poem to those who don't benefit from it. It's no help to have an added day if you're a salaried worker with no extra pay, or a prisoner spending leap year in jail, or a presidential candidate who'll fail. That was Rapid
0: City author Dorothy Rosby's humorous essay on Leap Day, You can find this piece and her other work in her book, Tis the Season to Feel Inadequate. More in the moment is coming up after the break on listener-supported SDPB. listening to in the moment on sdpb i'm Lori walsh well season 22 of american idol premiered with the south dakota voice that is the voice of logan colhane a student at black hill state university she was featured in one of the show's audition episodes and she is with us now to share a bit of her journey to singing before the american idol judges Logan is in SDPB's Sue W. White studio at Black Hill State University in Spearfish. Logan, welcome to In The Moment. Thanks for being here. Oh my Congratulations gosh. Uh, on this, Thank you this so much. American Idol journey. Big deal. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes. All right. Tell me a little bit about uh, being in front of the judges. So you do a series of Zoom auditions and then finally you get to go where do you go and what is the atmosphere like of doing the live auditions in front of people
11: man uh (laughs) you know the (laughs) it's really hard to explain because i i can't even remember half the emotions i was feeling that day it was so overwhelming and exciting and it was like scary and but i was so happy um i think one of the the biggest emotions i remember was probably right when you walk in and all the judges are kind of sitting right in the room right in front of you and it's like oh hey guys and i was like so so nervous at first but then i was like no this is you know they invited me here for a reason and i don't want to waste the opportunity by being so in my head about it and so i just kind of told myself like you know don't don't take advantage of this opportunity and like stay in your head the whole time i wanted to make sure that i could remember a lot of what was going on and so then i kind of took a few deep breaths and i calmed down and i talked to them which was really cool to say that i talked to them that's kind of awesome yeah (laughs) um but yeah then it, it really is just about like you know, recognizing what you're there to do. And so I sang and they're all great singers and they're just gonna judge my singing. And so it is what it is and what happens is gonna happen. Yeah, all right, so Luke Luke
0: Bryan, Katy Perry, and Lionel Richie is who you're in front of. And this is Mm Katy's last season or last season Uh, on the show, we think. So you get a little bit of that. And now you grew up watching this. This has been, the show has been on for a while. This is part of your childhood. It is, it
11: is. I watched it for a long time, and my mom even had some experience on it too. She tried out for the show when the auditions were on MySpace. So that gives you like a good gauge of how long ago that was because she tried out on MySpace. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, there was like a point where she was doing an interview, and I think I was running around as like a little three year old in the back of the interview, and they were like, Who is that? And she was like, Oh, it's my daughter, Logan. So that's kind of funny that there's like footage somewhere of me running around as a little three year old Uh. on the show. Um, and now here I am and I'm like 19 and trying out for the show, which is, it is very full circle. It's pretty surreal, but it's cool to have something that you've been watching and been involved with for so long. Yeah. And then now you get to say that you're involved with it.
0: And you love to perform. You love to have an audience to, to share your music with people. What do you think in a Black Hill State that, you know, this experience and it's early to say how this experience will impact you, but sure I, I, this is the performance aspect talk about that
11: yeah i mean i like i was born to f- perform i i love it with everything in me and you know even just the experience itself regardless of what else comes from it i know that it gave me um a really good boost in confidence which yeah. you know a lot of people don't realize that for so many performers their biggest enemy is always going to be themselves and so just having that boost that's like i deserve to be here and like i was invited to be here for a reason and like this is something that i'm actually capable of having that just kind of in my back pocket now i feel like i just carry myself a little differently like it feels easier to be more self-assured in what i'm doing and you know um i feel like that's just opening so many doors for me and i I continue to be involved in shows here at Black Hills, the theater program is incredible and it's flourishing and I, we just closed the musical that we did, yeah. we had like a full sold out run, it was awesome, and so I just, it's, yeah, it's really been like opening doors and just helping me feel ten times more confident in myself than I could have ever imagined. All right, we don't know what's happening next,
0: what can you tell us about where we get to find out what happens next?
11: All right. Well, the journey is beginning. Uh, The show is airing on ABC, so it airs 7 p.m. our time, and then the episodes come out on Hulu the day after they air. Um, I think we've had two of the audition episodes come out. There's five in total, and... As we all know, there is another one coming up this Sunday. So all what right. I can tell you is definitely to tune in and watch that because you won't want to miss it.
0: All right, we do not want to miss that. I would love to have you back on the show as you um, navigate this journey. And also I would love to have a conversation with you about being a young artist in South Dakota and finding you know, the work and the creative opportunities that you need. So let's not have this be the last time we hear from Logan Colhane.
11: Absolutely, I agree. I'd love to be back, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Logan. Thank you so much.
0: Tomorrow night, the collaboration of talented Native American composers will hold a workshop. Michelle Nahn is president and CEO of American Composers Orchestra, and she's with us on the phone to give us a preview of the collaboratory event. Melissa, welcome. Thanks for being here.
12: Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to speak with you.
0: We're just talking to a a young artist from South Dakota who was on American Idol and about loving to perform, And, and now we're going to talk about people who maybe love to compose. Tell us a little bit about this collaboration and this program.
12: Absolutely. Well, it's part of a program that we run at the American Composers Orchestra called Collaboratory, and it's a residency program for artists whose work is too bold and beautiful to exist within a standard commissioning process. Mm -hmm. Many of the artists who are in our programs are writing music that comes from traditions that sit outside of the Western classical canon. And it's really a space for us to really be thinking about how we expand the very definition of American orchestral music, particularly in a situation where we want to be thinking about what the American is in American symphony orchestras. You know, this is a moment where we're really engaging artists who are going to tell those stories powerfully through the music they're making. So we had a collaboration with the Tucson Symphony a couple of years ago where they were really interested in finding native american composers for a readings project that we had with them and part of what we found in our recruitment was that very few of the composers who we were finding were ready with orchestral scores either because that wasn't part of their practice up to that point or perhaps it wasn't part of the way they were trained towards the music making that they were engaging in or maybe it wasn't a desire prior to us reaching out so it made us really think about the idea that if this is a repertoire that wants to be built and if the community of artists wants to build that repertoire, a different space needs to be made for it to exist. So we've been really thrilled to initiate that project at the American Composers Orchestra in partnership with the Tucson Symphony and also in partnership with the South Dakota Symphony, which um, we're seeing the first result of this week. There really couldn't have been a better additional partner um, than South Dakota because of their deep commitment um, and their ongoing Lakota Music Project. So we're just super thrilled to have them as partners on the project and to see at least two of these works start to come to life.
0: All right. So Friday, March 1st at 7 p.m. local time is when this is unfolding here at the Multicultural Center Coliseum in Sioux Falls. And it's, a, it's a, it unfolds in real time. What does that mean? What will the experience be like for people who attend?
12: Absolutely. So we have two artists who are being featured in this session, Michael Begay and Suzanne Kite. Each of them is making music in really different and beautiful ways. What's really great about the collaboratory process is that typically when you come to an orchestra concert, you see a finished work. And in this case, each of these artists is coming in with ideas to experiment with, and the South Dakota Symphony is very generously contributing time with musicians to experiment with those ideas. So you're probably less going to see final work as you're going to see the process of creation, experimentation, and inquiry that leads to the creation of work that is really going to be boundary breaking. Um, So Michael's piece sort of merges experimental and electronic music with sonic sounds that come from the traditional orchestra instruments. And then Suzanne's work has to do with gathering dreams from the public in story form using a traditional Lakota dream kit to transition those dreams into images mm. and symbols, and then those being translated into a musical score for musicians to perform. So it's a first run at experimenting with both of those ideas.
0: Mm, this is a fantastic idea. I cannot wait. It's the collaboratory workshop. It's Friday, March 1st, 7 p.m. at the LSS. Multicultural Center Coliseum. That's a, a partnership there with the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, LSS, and American Composers Orchestra. My guest has been Melissa Nan, president and CEO of American Composers Orchestra. I hope we get to talk to you again, Melissa. This sounds like a great uh, project to, to follow also in the future.
12: Yeah, absolutely. We definitely are looking forward to it. It's been an amazing partnership with South Dakota Symphony. We're thrilled to have a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer, Raven Shacone. Yeah on the ground with the symphony as well, um, guiding these projects through their creation. And also he's writing a piece through the program for us and being workshopped in other cities too. So um, it's going to be a great collaboration. We're thrilled to be on the ground in South Dakota this week.
0: Thanks, Melissa. All right. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Yes, it is leap day. And we do have that essay from Dorothy Rosby. We're going to post it on our website at sdpb.org news. You won't want to miss it. On the next In the Moment, we will remember our friend, colleague, and beloved storyteller, Brian Gevick. Now, Brian traveled all over South Dakota to listen And record your stories, and you told him about your history, about your communities, about your lives. We're going to pay tribute to the man behind the camera, behind the microphone. He's the storyteller who forever holds a place in the front of our hearts. From all of us at SDPB, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening.